Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Greetings, this is Douglas Wilson, this is the podcast, and this is also episode 304, is that right? Yeah, 304 of the podcast. Welcome aboard, it's good to have you here. So, in various political discussions, and this, the discussions could range from economic issues like socialism versus free market um, capitalism, or it could be discussions of ethnic issues, anti-Semitism, whatever. When these discussions are getting down to the root of the matter, one of the things that has to be discussed is the matter of envy, the matter of envy. Now, it is a lot easier, and, and, and something I've noticed in these discussions is uh, we live in a time where pastors and teachers have not been nearly as consistent as they ought to have been in warning people against the sin of envy. It is, uh, historically speaking, one of the seven deadly sins. It is, uh, it's the worst. And, uh, well, the, the root of all sin is pride, self, um, self-willed pride or autonomy. But envy is right up there. Envy is right up there. And the thing that's interesting about envy is that because envy presupposes the inferiority of the person or perceived inferiority of the person feeling the envy, it is a very hard sin to get people to acknowledge or admit. It is a sin that people don't want to cop to. There are any number of sins where pagans can even brag about. I mean, you've probably been around non-believers who could brag about how many women they've had or or how drunk they got uh, the previous weekend or you know there are any number of sins where people can sort of glory in their shame but it's real hard to do that with envy there's something about the nature of envy that makes people want to deny that it is present and so when someone brings that up and says hey are you envying the 1% for the success that they've had or are you envying the people who have way more success in business than you do or no no it's the it's not it's not envy people will say it's the principle of the thing well when people say it's not the envy it's the principle of the thing that's your telltale sign that it's the envy it's a lot easier for people to notice that you're using the word envy to talk about things than it is for them to notice the envy itself and this is because envy is one of those optical illusion sins. If, uh, uh, let's say, uh, bitterness is another optical illusion sin. When, when I, when I uh, let's say I were to tell a lie, or let's say I were to shoplift something for some reason, every time I thought about the lie, I, every, time, every time I thought about the situation, what would come to the forefront of my mind is my conscience would be bothering me, and all I could think about was my lie. Or if I took something that wasn't mine, whenever I thought about it, all I could think about was my theft. Uh, but when someone tells a lie about me and spreads it all over town, whenever I think about the situation, I think about their lie, not my bitterness. 
I think about their lie, not my bitterness. If someone else at work gets the promotion that I thought was coming to me, and whenever I think about the situation, I think about their campaigning for that position or their uh, the stories they must have told or the person they must have paid off. Whenever I think about the situation, I think about their success. I don't think about my envy of their success. That's what I mean by optical illusion, uh, an optical illusion sin. So we have to understand that many of our political controversies, many of our political issues are envy-driven issues. And envy is the kind of thing that nobody wants to admit to. And so they deny it. Oh, no, no. It's, um, it's not that I envy the Jews their success. It's just that they must be cheating to, to get there. Or, and that's envy all over. That's, that's how envy operates. That's how envy thinks. It's not that I envy that millionaire for his entrepreneurial uh, success that was denied me. It's just that I think that he, he uh, must have pulled some strings. So be careful uh, when someone introduces the word envy into a conversation. Every descendant of Adam has a vested interest in discounting the possibility of that being an accurate observation. So. Make sure, make sure that you uh, don't react that way. Always will be Continuing on with the podcast, episode 304, the verb we're considering today in our hamartiology class is thumao, thumao, T-H-U-M-O-O. And it means to be wrathful, to be, to be wroth, to use the KJV language. It only occurs one time, and it describes the reaction of Herod the Great when the wise men were warned in a dream not to go back to him with any information about the baby Jesus. So in Matthew uh, chapter 2, it says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, there's our word, thumao, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth, and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So the wise men had apparently seen the star two years before. Uh, so the, uh, Herod is budgeting for, okay, when they saw the star, maybe the, maybe the future king was born right when the star appeared, or maybe the king was to be born by the, right when they got there, which was actually uh, apparently the case. So the, the wise men were uh, given advance warning. They set out. And they arrived when Jesus is apparently still fairly, uh, fairly young. Uh, the the night of the birth, he was. Uh, they were in an inn. That, excuse me. They were in a stable uh, near next next to an inn. And when the wise men got to Bethlehem, the things the things to note are that Joseph and Mary and Jesus are still in Bethlehem. They're still there. So it's a short time after, but when the wise men arrive, it says when they arrived at the house where they were staying. So Joseph had apparently obtained a better lodging from the night that Jesus was born, and the wise men showed up there. So Jesus is still very young, and but Herod is not taking any chances. He says, okay, I'm going to kill anybody that this star might be referring to. 
So they had seen the star a couple years before. So it could be that the baby was two years old. He could be a toddler by now, or it, as turned out to be the case, he could be a newborn. But Herod sent the uh, order out, and everyone, all the boy babies in Bethlehem and the region of Bethlehem were summarily murdered. Kings are not accustomed to being told no, and this is effectively what the wise men did. They told Herod no. Now, they had been told that Herod wanted to worship the Christ child along with them, but this was not the case. And so when the king was crossed in this way, uh, the Bible says he flew into a rage, thumao. We can identify the magnitude of the rage by how he responded. All the baby boys in the area of Bethlehem, two years old and younger, were slaughtered by Herod's soldiers and on Herod's orders. The KJV says that he was exceeding wroth and our word is used to make that point, and exceeding, exceedingly wrathful would be a good description. A king, obviously, should be judicious and wise and not be the kind who can fly off the handle just because he can, just because there's no one around who can tell him no. God don't never change God. So continuing on with the podcast, this is also continuing to be episode 304. The book I want to review uh, now uh, that I'm currently reading is uh, my uh, brother's book, my brother's most recent book. Uh, Gordon Wilson is a fellow of the senior fellow of natural philosophy at New St. Andrews College. He's our science guy, and his newest book is Darwin's Sandcastle. Darwin's Sandcastle. Now, it's difficult for me to talk about evolution uh, without sort of descending into, it would sound to many people like I'm descending into grotesque overstatement. But in my thinking, it's like, uh, how, <laughs> how, how did anybody come to believe this? So, so uh, Malcolm Muggeridge once wonderfully said that in retrospect, evolution will be seen to have been one of the great jokes of history. Now, what Gordon does in this book is he methodically works through a number of the basic issues. If you want a good introduction to the basic issues that surround the whole question of evolution, what about the fossils? What about radiometric dating? What about genetics? What, you know, all of these things. There's a very simple, straightforward explanation of these issues by someone who knows his science and who is very good at putting technical scientific things into layman's language without sacrificing accuracy. Uh, Gordon is a stickler for being accurate. He is a stickler for not strawmanning uh, the opposition. He, what he wants to do is steelman the opposition. He wants to confront the, um, confront the follies of evolution without uh, misrepresenting. Uh, the evolutionist. So, Darwin, uh, if you read Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, you can see that we are in the midst, uh, we, we are seeing, I believe, the collapse of the evolutionary uh, paradigm. And it is a collapse that is contributed to by creationists, by intelligent design writers, and by people 
who would appear not to have a dog in the fight, who are atheists, but who say that the theory of evolution just doesn't add up. If the gene that mutates is absolutely blind and unintelligent and is simply accidentally groping its way into the future, there really ought to be a lot more misshapen nice tries. It's like um, watching evolutionary progress is like watching somebody win Powerball 128 times in a row. After the second time, you would start saying, wait a minute, didn't, weren't, you the guy, <laughs> weren't you the guy that won Powerball last year and the year before and the year before? I mean, what are the odds? At some point, you're going to think, I think you must know somebody. I think you've got, I think you're pulling strings. I think this is not on the up and up. I'm sorry, the hummingbird's heart did not accidentally happen all by itself.